From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 551, Database Reliability in 2017, with guest Alan Hurt. Recorded Thursday, September 7th, 2017. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio. My guest today is Alan Hurt. He's last on back in 2012, and he's a SQL Server mission critical expert and a dual Microsoft MVP in the data platform, as well as a 2017 VMware V expert. He's been working with and helping customers using SQL Server since 1992, when it was still a Sybase product. Alan is the founder of the SQL HA LLC and provides consulting and training worldwide on all mission-critical topics such as virtualization, architecture, high availability, disaster recovery, and is the author of numerous books, white papers, and articles. Welcome back, sir. Entirely too long. Yeah, we should, we probably shouldn't let it be that long, but you know how uh, busy life gets sometimes. Yeah. You blink and it's like three years. So yeah, 2008, 2009, 2012. So five years later, we've had a few versions of SQL Server and a few things have changed since Server 8 in 2012. But you're still in the database business. Yeah, surprisingly, right? I mean... Oddly enough, organizations still storing data. It's the strangest thing. I know, right? Nobody uses data. I mean, why would they need data? (laughs) I'm actually finding people starting to do stuff with the data they were collecting. You know, for a long time, it seemed like all they're doing was collecting the data. They weren't actually doing anything. But there seems to be more going on these days. They're they're doing a lot with it. Yeah, that's that's what's sort of getting interesting is it's now not just making sure that things are either performing or, you know, even just available. But now people are really starting to do a lot with the analysis of the data. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing a lot of that sort of blending between the infrastructure and I would hesitate to say, but the app side of things that we used to sort of see as a sort of two different worlds is merging a little bit more. Yeah, I tend to agree. I'm also seeing a lot more your transactional data store and your analysis data stores are not the same technology. They're not in the same location. It's just you're used to gathering the data as efficiently as possible, and then you're pushing it out to something that's built to do analytics. Yeah, it's 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 kind of crazy to see because, I mean, I'm used to, you know, again, historically up until the past, you know, couple of years of you go into a shop and they'll have either SQL Server or Oracle or the big monolithic databases. Mm-hmm. But now a lot of folks just have a mixture of a whole mess of technologies to get the job done. Are you still finding lots of SQL Server out there? Like that's just never going away? You know, it, it it's where my bread is buttered, but I will say that SQL Server is still going strong out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I hear the same thing, too. There's a fair bit of just saying, well, we already are paying for it, right? Like, we have a dependency on it, so we might as well use it. I just wonder, if you're dealing with an organization coming in green, would they deploy SQL Server? You know, I think it depends on use, to be honest with you. It's mm-hmm. like anything else. But having said that, I think SQL Server on Linux now opens that discussion up a little bit more, right? Really? Yeah, oh, Absolutely. Because I would think that if you've got a Linux backend, you're going to be more prone to Oracle or even DB2 than you would be SQL Server. Oh, uh, it's not. Well, they haven't had many other options besides, right. you'd say, Oracle for a while. And I'm hearing from a sort of kind of a lot of folks 
that they're really interested in the SQL Server piece. Ironically enough, I, I actually have been helping Microsoft on the HA piece of it and doing a lot of the documentation for them on how to implement, say, AGs and FCIs with the Linux-based product. So High availability on Linux with SQL Server. Yes. I love everything about that. You've got to walk me through it. What's different? Pretty much everything and nothing at the same time. <laughs> so from a SQL Server perspective, it's just availability groups and it's just an FCI from that sort of right. high-level perspective. But when you get down to it, how you implement it, by and large, is quite different in some cases. So there's a cluster piece, obviously. We don't have a Windows Server failover cluster. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. The fundamental difference here is uh, failover clustering is specific to the operating system. Yeah, so what what you're using on Linux is a stack called Pacemaker. Pacemaker. Yeah, it's an open source thing that all the supported distros have, but it's not completely consistent in the sense that each of the distros can sort of customize it and implement it slightly differently. So like Ubuntu and Red Hat Enterprise Linux are pretty much the same. Interesting. Whereas SUSE, their enterprise, uses a little different, like in terms of syntax and stuff. Well, and that's no different than Windows, right? Windows has its own particular approach to clustering, and you need to know it if you're going to be successful with a failover solution. Yeah, but the, the sort of the different thing here is that it's external to the OS, really. Even though they ship huh. it with... It's not integrated like a Windows Server failover cluster is. It's not like a feature that's baked into the OS, just part of the core everything, right? So, like, for example, with availability groups, if you're using the availability side for availability groups, and I'll talk about that in a, here in a second, mm -hmm. you actually have to essentially create your availability group first and then do the stuff at the cluster level. Because part of what you do at the cluster level, you have to sort of tell it what availability group you're going against when you create the pieces in the cluster. So it's a bit different. Mm -hmm. But what I meant by the using the availability portion, so SQL Server 2017, the new one that's coming out, mm -hmm. you have sort of uh, new options for deploying availability groups, even more so than we did in 2016, which introduced distributed availability groups, which I'll, I'm sure we'll get to later. But with Linux, sort of the nature of the way things are and because the cluster manager is external to the OS, essentially, there are now is something called a cluster type when you create an availability group. So for Windows, it's WSFC, which makes sense. For Pacemaker, it's external. And for there's this other one called None. And None allows you to create an availability group without any kind of underlying cluster. Hmm. So what the purpose for that mainly is for sort of what Microsoft's calling their read scale out scenario. Right. But you can also technically use it for other stuff, but Microsoft isn't supporting it as an availability configuration. Okay. But it's kind of neat. I mean, like you can use it for like migrations or, but I said their main sort of eye to the sky for that one is scaling out your reads using multiple secondaries with availability groups. And actually, you can even do it on Windows, so you can technically create an availability group on Windows now without a, a Windows Server failover cluster. Just won't be, yeah. <laughs> just it's it, like we're we're more than just Linux. We're kind of getting into Bizarro world, yeah, for some of this stuff. Uh, this is really really exciting stuff, and of course, this show's coming out while we're at Ignite. 
So considering where we were with SQL Server 2017 three weeks earlier when we were recording this, I got to presume it's out at Ignite. It's soon. It's definitely either I would if if I had to guess, because I really don't know. Yeah, and that means we're allowed to speculate because we don't actually know, right? Yeah, and even if I did know, I couldn't say, but... Right. The fact that you're willing to say is sort of a sign you don't know. Right. It'd either be Ignite or for Past Summit, which is just a few weeks later. So we're not far off. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's it's imminent anyway. And it's... Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is, uh, it is without a doubt a strange new world, but it's exciting to see someone in your situation who's been you know, dealing with SQL Server for a long time, happily saying, oh, you want to do this on Linux? No problem. Let's do it. So that's that's very cool to me. Well, the interesting part about that, too, is people are sort of doing this sort of us versus them thing, like, well, it's Windows right. and Linux, and really, it's just SQL Server, choose your platform. Sure, right. sure, there are some differences. I mean, you don't get like analysis services and a few other things, but by and large, mm-hmm. for the relational engine stuff, it just works. It's just SQL Server. So who cares? Well, and the conversations I've had with folks who, I mean, are so sick of Oracle. Like, you know, as much as Microsoft for a long time was looked at the boogeyman, and like, boy, oh boy, the relationship that people, some people have with Oracle, it's really something. Yeah, I've actually heard the same thing more with regards to the Linux side, which is interesting hmm. because a lot of the excitement I'm hearing from potential customers or people I've talked to is that they're sick of Oracle on Linux. Right. They're like SQL, Ser- they're looking at SQL Server going, if this works, We'll happily, you know, think of switching. Sure. But not enough that they're willing to run Windows in their data centers, but enough that they're willing to try a Microsoft product running on Linux. Right. And I think that's part of why Microsoft is doing this, because quite frankly, people are doing a, a lot of app dev on the Linux side of the house. So it makes sense to have a database platform on there. I don't think it's sure. that much, any more insidious than that. Why well, have a cross over, over the platform? Now, one of the things that is interesting to me these days, especially when you're talking about the Greenfield scenario, is does it make sense to build out large-scale database reliability on-premises when you've got the cloud now? If you love the way SQL Server works, what's wrong with SQL Azure? Well, you know, or AWS, let's let's play nice, right? Sure, sure. I think there's still, in many organizations, kind of like with the virtualization 10 years ago, a bit of a fear in the cloud of, you know, well, what happens, right? Sure. So I think we're still a few years off from massive wide-scale adoption. And right now, I think for some scenarios, the cloud just doesn't make sense financially. Like mm-hmm. we had one customer we were working with a few months back where the size of their SQL Server implementation to get anything remotely close in Azure was kind of ridiculously expensive versus they could go buy a server with that amount of memory and the storage they needed for a fraction of the cost and they'd own it. Wow. Because that's not the usual argument at all. Buying new hardware and SQL server licenses are pretty dear these days. To have that number come up smaller than, say, an annual operating cost of SQL Azure, that really says something. That must be a big database. Well, right. And that's where I think we're seeing the difference, right? For There are still implementations that are fairly large Mm -hmm. that don't kind of fit in the box that will, I think, either always be on physical hardware just by itself or virtualized, which is obviously still on physical hardware on premises somewhere. Right. But I think as time happens and as people sort of get over their FUD around 
whatever cloud they pick. I think your small to medium sized stuff will slowly migrate. And I think this is where the hybrid scenarios are going to get really interesting, right, over the next few years. So it's going to be kind of an interesting ride, I think, as time goes on. Because we've had a large paradigm shift just with virtualization. And now I think we're to a degree on the other side of virtualization. Doesn't mean people are stopping doing it or aren't going to do it. But I think now it's more the eye towards the cloud and what can we throw up there versus have on premises. Sure. Well, I got to imagine last time we talked back in 2012, there was still a fair bit of debate around whether it made sense to virtualize SQL Server at all. Yeah. I, I think that debate's kind of over today, but it was back then. Yeah. And, and I would say and when I walk into customers, easily anywhere between 70 and 100% of their servers are virtualized in one form or another. Right. So what's still bare metal? It's usually a few SQL Server stragglers, a few big iron things. But outside of that, right, pretty much everything I've seen. Now, you can also have the debate of do you virtualize things like AD controllers or do you keep one physical, one virtual? That stuff still happens. No, yeah, I always have that conversation with a pair of physical ADs just because AD is AD. But... It's interesting you say the the bare metal SQL servers are the archaic ones, because I've certainly seen cases where people are unwilling to upgrade the version of SQL server and the hardware starts to get old. And so they flip it to a VM to get away from the hardware dependency. Oh, yeah. that, that I mean, that and, you know, the P to V of the old, say, yeah. 2005 and 2000 systems that just are on those monolithic 4U units that are going to die. Yeah, that are just hard, hardware nightmares. Oh, absolutely. And... That's sort of where we're at. And and this is also interesting, too, because now we're getting to a point where people planned, say, SQL Server and Windows Server upgrades with hardware refresh cycles. Right. Now that everything's sort of virtualized, be it through your hypervisor of choice on premises or in one of the clouds, sort of that drive to upgrade your quote unquote server every few years is not as there as much I see. Yeah, I mean, it's it's there, but it's completely independent of the VM. Why would I want to disrupt this VM? Just live ship it over to the new piece of hardware until every all the workloads off the old hardware and we could spin it down and pull it out of here. Right, and, and it gets interesting now too, because if it just is working, like what's the incentive to go to a SQL Server 2016 or SQL Server 2017? No, I think there's a strong disincentive. All you're doing is talking about breaking something that's working fine. Yeah. Especially when you have an old version of a database like that running on much more modern versions virtualized hardware, it's probably smoking fast. Well, exactly. And and again, that's very juxtaposition with the release cadences from both Microsoft and pretty much everyone else, right? Right. We've gone, they're so fast these days. Right. I mean, we're looking now at Windows Server with what they announced a few months ago, where if you're on the fast track for the insiders for Windows Server, you can only be two versions behind and they're going to ship every six months. So basically, you have an right. 18-month life cycle of your Windows Server product. That's crazy. It's wild. You know, we haven't seen that since the 90s, really. And even then, it wasn't enforced like this. Yeah. Alan, give me one second here to pay the bills. Have you looked at Google Cloud Platform yet? GCP supports Windows Server 2008, 2012, 2016, as well as SQL Server 2012, 2014, 2016 standard, web, and enterprise editions. Your developers can build their ASP.NET applications directly on Google Cloud Platform with Visual Studio integration. Prefer containers? Google Cloud Platform is the original Kubernetes container environment. And if you need help, GCP has a great set of partners, including Capgemini, Nudesic, and Magenic to help you get your workloads across. Go to gcp.runasradio.com to get your free trial today.
And we're back. Richard Campbell here on Run As Radio talking to Alan Hurt back after five years off doing other things, but still big on database availability. And obviously, you know, the strength of the cloud is that ability to scale out pretty much on demand, geo-replication, multiple redundant copies. Like I remember doing that with physical gear back in the dot-com boom. I don't know that I'd want to do it by hand ever again. I would... To a degree, agree with you, but in some ways, it's just as difficult, I think, in the cloud. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for example, like on Azure, you still have to set up like the ILB for, if you're doing, say, an availability group across different Azure regions. Right. So the same concepts all are still there and how you do it. You're not physically hooking up the hardware, making sure the circuits and everybody's talking to each other. That's sort of done for you. Right. But there are still pieces that are kind of a pain in the rump to do. Yeah. Nothing's, nothing's as simple as you think. No. And they, I mean, the upside is it's a lot cheaper to play with it in Azure than it ever was buying hardware, setting up remote data centers, and then figuring out if you could really make it work. Oh, absolutely. And that's where I think sort of your first mass adoption by a lot of companies is going to mm-hmm. come because your cloud of choice will become your sort of disaster recovery of choice. Right. Sure. I mean, because it's there as long as you can connect to the internet, you can get to it. Right. Yeah, I've I've looked at as, as Azure Site Recovery as the gateway drug into the cloud. Although I'm sure it's not just Azure. Like these are the things that you don't want to run a backup data center. Those are really expen- expensive stuff. So the fact that you can keep instances of VMs continuously updated in the cloud and be able to switch over. That's really powerful. Well, there's that. And then on the SQL Server side, I would say the gateway drug, if you will, is backup to URL. Right. Where you can basically use Azure blob storage for your backups. Wow. So it's kind of interesting. Like I said, it's five years. I mean, it's been a long time, but a lot's changed. Yeah, no, it's it's exciting to talk to you, actually, because in some ways we get this jump snapshot. It's like, hey, you're still in the HA business, but in five years, a lot is different. Yeah, and it, it's exciting. I mean, I still enjoy what I do because of that. Sure, same concepts, but how we're doing it and how we're looking at it and how we're approaching it, in some cases, is the same, but with other cases and other customers and other scenarios, 100% different. Sure. But the, the core issue of people need to store data, they need to know it's safe, recovery time versus data loss, like those basic metrics, that that's just business. That's never gone away. No, and it's not getting any easier Especially with, as we kind of joked earlier about how, you know, data is important and people are storing more and more of it. You know, it's yes. still not trivial to restore terabytes of data. Nope. A terabytes, a terabytes. It's a lot of work going, you know, jumping back to back that old time frame. In 2011, I had a customer affected by the Fukushima crisis. They wanted to migrate their exchange server away from a site relatively close to Fukushima. And so they literally started a data transfer down to Okinawa. And I did the math for what they needed to move and said, I can get on an airplane, fly to Tokyo, buy a few hard drives, copy onto them, fly to to Okinawa and install them in less time than it's going to take to do that transfer. Yeah, that's funny, but... That's kind of where we are, right? It's it it's Yeah, it's the truth. A- and the funny thing about that now is, you know, we're in the world of RDMA and or if you want to say InfiniBand, some people will say that yeah. you know, where we have really super fast networking and that all helps, but it's still not a panacea. I mean, you can't you can't beat physics. You no, know, and InfiniBand is short range, right? Like, you know, in within a rack. 
But across the across the country, not so much. Right. But I will tell you, in the Microsoft world, I've been espousing it. We've we've done Hyper-V implementations for customers that have used RDMA because it was a for SQL Server because it works with sort of regular SQL Server too. And RDMA is amazing. It uh, is good stuff. So you're using it with SQL Server for uh, always on, like continuous connectivity. No, actually, so what's lit up for RDMA for SQL Server is the data files, Mm -hmm. or obviously if you're using Hyper-V for all the virtual disks and like live migration traffic. And actually, you know, ironically, uh, VMware now supports limited, but uh, RDMA as well, but in guest only. Interesting. Yeah, you can present up a uh, virtual RDMA adapter to your guest. So, like, in theory, you could, say, create a scale-out file server, a VMware VM with RDMA, and have it all done that way. It's, again, a wild world out there. And how fast are we talking? So, the way RDMA works, for those who are listening and don't know, basically, you're sort of bypassing the normal network stack and basically going Mm -hmm. server-to-server, if you will. And... Back a few years ago, when we did the implementation with a customer that we were working with, they were using 10 gig, but they were, had four ports, so it was 40 aggregate. Wow. But now, I mean, you can get 40 gig. Out of one wire. Yeah, out of one wire. And, just, and you know, if you had four of those, you know, imagine 160 gig, <laughs> where, whereas if you're pushing, say, a traditional SQL server on a hardware where you're using HBAs that are only 8 or 16. Yeah. It's a different league. Craziness. Right. And in the meantime, on the internet, we're talking about gigabit Ethernet and being really excited. It's like, let me tell you about 160. <laughs> I know, right? I, now, the one thing I really would love to see SQL Server Dev do is light up the availability group's traffic, so the traffic between the primary and the other replicas, over the RDMA transport like they've done, say, for live migration. Right. That would be phenomenal. Yeah, no, that's really that's really powerful stuff. I think it's also an aspect that's keeping on-premise relevant. Yeah, that these kinds of new, you know, the the for a long time the bottleneck has been the wire. Yeah, machines keep getting faster, drives keep getting bigger and faster, but the wire, you know, one gig, ten gig, and most people don't get full utilization out of it anyway. At the best of times, you know, you've got to hope the cloud guys are better at actually getting full utilization out of their networking but still not keeping pace with the speed of everything else. No, and that's a scary thing, is getting getting this all done right is actually hard. Sure, yeah. And it, in some ways, jumping to new networking stack. Like Ethernet, in a lot of ways, is just so opaque. You don't really know if it's working well. You don't know. <laughs> you just don't know. It's hard to measure. I, the number of times I've caught a bad cable or a bad jack, you know, the, as the actual problem, why is this machine just not behaving as well as anything else? It's like right away, throw a new wire to a different connection, you know, just to eliminate that aspect. I mean, a non-trivial amount of times, that was not the issue, but often enough. And it's like, tell me how you would have known if we hadn't just tried it. Well, and that's sort of, for me, part of the argument of virtualization in the cloud is, you know, yeah, there's, you're still running on somebody's physical server somewhere. Yeah. Let's be clear about this. It's somebody else's computer. There's no two ways about that. It's just that you're hoping it's people. It's very good computers run by very good people. Right. But you're not worried about and the traditional reason we used to do clustered instances of SQL, and I still right. see plenty of it, right, mm-hmm. is because mm-hmm. you're protecting against things like NIC failure. Right. 
And now when you have Venix, I mean, Venix don't die. So No, they really, they're really not going to. Well, and just as abstraction between the hardware and it, you have multiple redundancies. You have multiple NICs in the machine. You have Venix in, in the VMs. They're, they'll always find a way. You know, you can lose a couple, and at least you'll know that they've gone down and you can replace the hardware as necessary. Absolutely. You know, and it's even changed how we virtualize SQL Server in availability configurations because, you know, again, the traditional, oh, you've got to have two NICs and the whole bit. Yep. The reality is, is when you virtualize a clustered configuration of SQL Server for the clustered instances or availability groups, you have to really question whether you need multiple VNICs if basically underneath the covers using the same V switch going to the same NICs underneath. Right. It's, it's awesome. And it's just, I don't know, you know, the cloud guys are doing this. I don't know how much of us on premise are really doing that. Well, it's slow because I think there are some folks out there who are just scared that the cloud's going to take away their job. I mean, DBAs didn't go away. You, no. you know, it's just shifting your skill sets around to what's relevant and what matters. Yeah, I mean, it's not like anybody ever got to the bottom of the IT to-do list, <laughs> ever. You know, there's so much to do. So the idea that you would offload, admittedly, stuff you may at one point have been good at, but was certainly repetitive, whether it was spinning a screwdriver, flipping disks, or creating user accounts, you know, manual onboarding, every person I ever talked to working in this space, as they start automating this stuff, the normal reaction is, why didn't I do this sooner? Because all I'm trying to do is get into really more enjoyable parts of work, more prevention, more performance, you know, more increasing your visible value. Imagine getting to a place with your data stores where all you're working on was actually showing you value from the data. I, I can't imagine we'd ever get there, but it's not a bad thing to strive for. No, absolutely not. And that sort of, you look at things like Azure Stack, which is now becoming a thing, right? Yep. So you have that. Now, the thing that really isn't changing where I think the cloud is harder, than, and we saw this a bit with virtualization too, is the monitoring aspect. Because, you know, you're looking at what's going on inside the guest VM, and even in IaaS in the cloud, really, you have a VM. Yep. But you're trying to figure out, say, sort of what you're talking about, a performance problem. Well, unfortunately, if you don't have visibility at the platform layer, so whatever hypervisor you're using and potentially the hardware, trying to actually figure out your performance problem sometimes gets harder because you don't know what's, say, putting pressure on that virtual machine mm -hmm. from some external source. So it's, again... Stuff we've always done, but but we're shifting how we're looking at things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's just a different approach to all of that, but it's still it's still ultimately the same job. What are you seeing in terms of the reporting side of the equation? In you know, are are people using different tools? Is that more likely to move the cloud than the primary store? Yeah, you know, I think because the cloud is still a bit open right now, I don't think sure. anybody's settled on a tool set. I mean, no. in the Microsoft world, or at least the SQL Server world, we have fairly standard tools that a lot of folks use across a couple different vendors. Mm -hmm. But I still think it's hard to get that view into Azure or AWS in a comprehensive way that maps to a lot of the, say, tools we have on-premises, you know, things like System Center and stuff like that. I don't think we have tools that are that comprehensive just yet. Right. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's one right answer. Everybody's trying different things. I'm always astonished when I talk to folks who are saying, oh, Hadoop is passe. You know, that's the old way. There's now the new way. <laughs> and certainly Microsoft, again, we're recording several weeks before Ignite, but I'm sure this is also in the announcements stack where, somewhere. Microsoft's new Power BI tools. That's pretty powerful stuff. It takes time to get your head around them, but it sort of speaks to the next generation of analytics. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm not a big analytics guy, and I'll be the first to admit it, but it's sure. fascinating watching all of this stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's not just like one flavor of it either. I mean, there's like the machine learning stuff. There's mm-hmm. just straight up BI, you know, the traditional stuff that we've always had. So even that stuff over the past few years has really changed into more than just, oh, I've got analysis services, and let's build a cube. Right. Yeah, it's not it's not like that anymore. It's certainly more diverse. So, I mean, we're running down the clock here a bit, Alan. I feel like in the HA space, you've got some archaic gear, you know, your, your older stuff that's still in place and you're still taking care of it. And you've got the really interesting leading edge stuff where when performance really matters, on-premises can't be touched and you're experimenting with Affiniband and, and some of this newer technology to get the max out of it as well. Is the middle of the road tending to move towards more cloud or alternative solutions? We're seeing a little of that. So, for example, you have a platform like Nutanix, right? Not saying it's good, bad, or indifferent. We've had some customers that use it that have sort of, because of the way they do their data duplication inside sort of the way they do their business, you have data redundancy that way, which then makes... If you're looking at, say, doing traditional SQL Server stuff like availability groups on top of that, you may have to approach it a little bit differently because then you're storing more copies of data sort of on the same stuff. So then you'd say, well, if I'm using Nutanix or a platform like it as my main thing, do I then just use something like availability groups to go outside that? box right right, to somewhere else so i have that redundancy elsewhere yeah cheaper than building a second data center you got it so it's getting that's where it's getting interesting because we're still always going to use availability groups and Mm -hmm. clustered instances and that stuff they all have their place yep but but in context of these new architectures and hardware and all these other things how we're thinking about implementing them is getting different yeah now, because you have to account for these choices. I mean, just being responsible to your CTO, CIO, CEO is here are all the things I looked at. And you have to have conversations about these cloud options. It's got to be part of the conversation. Where, where we're seeing that people have to be careful is that with all this sort of redundancy that some of these platforms are building in, you can now have almost too many copies of the data eating up a lot of space and yep. bandwidth by copying this stuff around. Yeah. And, and at the same time, we're abandoning the SAN and all that deduplication power we once had too. So yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting balance. And at the same time, it's like eight terabyte drives, dudes, like we got a lot of storage. <laughs> you know, but we said that in the past too. Oh, look, I've got like a 500 gig drive. I'll never yeah. exceed that. I'll never fill that. That's crazy talk. Yeah, and yeah, the, and the multi-class, we haven't done enough storage shows lately, but that multi-class storage, some NVDE and some SSD and then the massive spinning options, like there's a lot of choice in how you store and keep things as fast as they need to be and cost-effective where, where you can be. Oh, I can't wait till NVDMN comes down to a price that it's like yeah good and you can actually store stuff on. I mean, the chips now are small, yep. but I mean... NVMe was a huge step forward. NVDIMM-N is going to be like really amazing. And the same thing with the multi-terabyte SSDs too. Yeah. Well, I guess we're going to have to wait another five years and then recap again, Alan, because I like these jumps. We get to have so much change in in between. 
Yeah, I know, right? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) hopefully it's not five years, but yeah, it's interesting looking back, though. It's a bit too long, too long ago. So uh, yeah, stay in touch, my friend. It was really good to talk to you. It's nice to hear the, the, the business going well and just changing with the opportunities that the times are presenting. Uh, same here. And, you know, it's always good to catch up with an old friend. And, you know, this is time. We live in very interesting, fun times if you're in IT. We certainly do. Yeah. It's a great time to be in IT. I, I, I'm always baffled by folks that are threatened. It's like, no, there's only more. And it's never going to be any different because in, you know, who knows what's coming down the pike. We think, like I said, NVDIM N is cool now. There'll be yeah. something to replace it in a year or two. I think you're right. Alan Hurt, thank you so much for coming back on Run As. Thanks for inviting me. Hope to be back soon. You bet. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio. Mm-hmm.